You are listening to Redefining Disability, an adaptive sports podcast brought to you by Move United. I am your host, Sean Butcher, and I have the privilege of serving as the editor of Move United Magazine, the nation's leading adaptive sports publication. Each week, tune in to hear how sports have made it possible for our nation's adaptive athletes, training tips from the best coaches and program leaders, and news on the latest technology, equipment, and trends in the industry. Keith Cable was introduced to snowboarding in 2000, and he quickly developed a love for the sport. In June 2005, Gable was involved in an industrial accident that crushed his left foot. After multiple medical procedures, he made the decision to amputate his leg just below the knee. Gable returned to a snowboard just three months later, but it wasn't until the 2010-11 season, his sixth season riding with an amputation, that he found out about competitive para-snowboarding and began training with the National Ability Center in Utah. He is now a three-time Paralympian and two-time Paralympic medalist. As a Team Hartford athlete, he has also helped gift a new adaptive sports equipment to other athletes with disabilities. So Keith, I'm excited to talk to you today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Sean. So now that you were, uh, you got into snowboarding, you know, uh, pre-injury, but um, I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, your injury first. You know, in 2005, you had an industrial accident and and maybe for those that aren't familiar with your story, let's start from there. Yes, sir. It was, it was a normal day. Um, I was going on vacation for the very first time since starting with this company. I had worked almost every single day for a few years straight. And they felt I had earned uh, some time off. So a buddy of mine and I were going to go out to Mexico and kind of celebrate our 21st birthdays before we turned 21. And yeah, like I said, just a normal day. Uh, The big difference was I wasn't on a rig. I was at home. Well, I was at the yard uh, loading trailers and just a random, random accident. I was, I guess I was in a little bit of a hurry, to be honest. I cut a couple corners. I had a really heavy load. I was, I was loading well casing with a skid steer. And instead of, if you think of like a skid steer being like a bobcat with a little bucket on there, uh, this one had forks and it was primarily used to just load trailers and unload trailers. It was old school as like a 1960s model K. So no safety features whatsoever. And the ones that were kind of there didn't even work. So no seatbelt, no roll cage, none of that kind of stuff. And like I said, my my load was a little bit heavy. So uh, when I started to move forward, I picked the load up to clear the trailer. I drove down into a little divot in the ground, maybe literally two inches, maybe deep. And it was just enough to kind of tip the whole thing forward. And where there was no seatbelt or anything like that, uh, the whole thing started to shift forward and kind of catapulted me out of the seat. So because there was nothing restraining me, obviously I went flying out of it, but I was holding on to the two controls and I jammed one of them down. So I landed on my feet, totally fine. I was like, okay, we're good. The machine was actually standing itself back up because I had jammed that control down as it was launching me out. And I realized I was like in between a bunch of pinch points. So I turned around to go jump back into the safe spot, which is the controller seat and stepped in with my right foot. And as I was pulling my left foot in, I mean, it was just that fast, the stabilizer bar between the two, um, between the two forks 
that sits flush against the body caught my foot. Mm. Um, and so I was stuck in it for about roughly 15 to 20 minutes. It's kind of hard to say, uh, but over 2000 pounds worth of hydraulic pressure crushing my foot, um, sustained about 200 breaks and fractures in my foot. And yeah, it was pretty rough. <laughs> I, know you, I know you went through you know, a lot of different medical procedures uh, and ultimately you, you did make the decision to, to have your leg amputated. What was that? Was that an easy decision at that point? And, and how did you come to that decision? Yeah, I mean, I don't think it was an easy decision, but it was the one that made the most sense for me. I mean, so I, like you said, I had gone through multiple procedures. We had, I had to have emergency fasciotomy. They drained 96 fluid ounces of blood out of my foot. Um, emergency reconstructive surgery took about seven hours to put my foot back together. And they lifelighted me to a trauma hospital where I spent the next couple of weeks. So anytime I'd sit up past a 45 degree angle, that big hole they cut in the top of my foot to do all of those procedures, all the blood would come geysering out of that. And I'd essentially bleed to death. So mm -hmm. bled out three separate occasions. Uh, the third time I was gone for about three minutes before they were able to bring me back, you know, full defib resuscitation, CPR, the works. Um, and after that, I was kind of just, I was told I had to lie flat. And after a couple of weeks of that, the doctor said, you know, your foot's dying. You need to go home, watch it die and decide what you want to do. And so that's what I did. So in a sense, it was kind of an easy decision because my foot was killing me. Um, but it was also extremely difficult because nobody wants to lose a limb. Right. right. Um, and so the day we, we made the decision, my doctor called me and said, Hey, you know, it, it looks really bad. We need to make some decisions here. And I had three toes that had completely died black rock hard. And, uh, said, you know, we could try partial limb salvage. I said, okay, what does that look like? He said, you know, five to six surgeries. If they don't all work in about a year, we're going to have to cut it off. He said, you're headed towards gangrene. Mind you, I'd lost about a hundred pounds at this point. Mm -hmm. And my foot was essentially taking all of my life force to try to just save it. My body was just dedicating everything I had to try to save the foot, which was depleting me of everything. Um, he said, we could try the limb salvage, you know, five, six surgeries. It may or may not work. If gangrene sets in, we could potentially chase that to your hip um, if it doesn't kill you. So I said, how long till I can snowboard? Because I was a snowboarder. I mean, it's a big part of my life before and well after, obviously. But it's something that's always been my church, if you will. It's like where I get, and I don't mean to get religious here, but it's where I get closest to God. Mm -hmm. 10, 12,000 feet up in the mountains you know, in nature, kind of just doing as you please, if you will. It's, it's, it's very special to me. It's, it's, it's like my church. So he said, you know, if, if everything goes perfectly, I could see you back on a snowboard, maybe 10 to 12 years ish. Oh. He's like, we're not really sure. And that's if ever, that was the other part. He's like, it may not ever happen. I said, okay, well, what if we just amputate? How long till I could snowboard? And he said, you know, you got a great attitude. You're a healthy guy. You're young. You know, technology is awesome. Mind you, this was during the height of the Iraq war, 2005. We were dumping a ton of money into technology mm -hmm. for uh, lower limb 
amputations, which was kind of the first time ever the government had really dedicated so much finances to uh, below the knee amputees, um, mm -hmm. primarily because we could get away with walking around on a peg, right? We can get away with pretty minimal, you know, hands and arms, it's pretty important. So that's generally where all the technology goes. Um, but uh, he said, you know, technology is great. I could see you living a normal life doing everything in three years. And I go, okay, well, it's July now. Opening days in October. I said, how about three months? He goes, whatever's going to make you make the right decision. You know, he wanted me to amputate, I think, but he couldn't tell me to do that. He right. had to weigh out all the options. And he knew that we were looking at very slim chance that all of the skin grafts and muscle grafts and partial amputation and everything, he, he knew that it probably wasn't going to work and we were going to have to amputate anyway, but he couldn't really push me in one direction or the other. So I said, okay, he's saying there's a chance. I said, all right, let's cut it off. If you think that it's possible, let's, let's just cut it off. Let's cut to the chase. I don't want to waste any more of my life. Mm -hmm. And in that regard, it was somewhat of an easy decision because I had gone through the last month or so, just terrible pain, um, feeling like I was dying. You know, I just wanted to be rid of it all. And I wanted to move forward. I didn't want to waste any more time. I wanted to get back on my drill rig. I wanted to be able to snowboard and I wanted to just get back to normal life. So about a week later, uh, we went in and did the cut. And that's why I asked if it was, you know, easy in, a, in that sense, because obviously it's technically not easy, <laughs> not an easy well, decision. But, but definitely. I mean, as a young man, I was I was this was my amputation was a week before my 21st birthday. And so many things go through your head. I mean, mm -hmm. will I be able to stand on a drill rig again? Will I be able to snowboard again? Will I be, quote unquote, normal, whatever that is? Will I be uh, seen as a lesser human? I mean, I was always a really gung ho guy, you know, and would I be seen attractive by, by, uh, you know, the opposite sex, all these things as a young man, you wonder, yeah. you, and, and that was, that was very challenging going through all of the options of like what my life might be after the fact, that's where it was really hard. And so obviously there was no hesitation for you to, to want to get back on that board. Um, but I understand there was a pretty, pretty big law between getting back on the board and then actually learning about the company. The competitive side of parasnowboarding. Um, why do you think that is? It took took that long, uh, you know, for any individual to discover that. And and how did you discover the world of parasnowboarding? So there was no such thing in the beginning. When I started snowboarding as an adaptive snowboarder, there was no such thing. Mm -hmm. And after a couple of years of snowboarding with an amputation, I started kind of asking that question: Why? 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 Uh, I started reaching out to my local adaptive uh, programs, you know, the National Ability Center, uh, uh, Ogden Valley Adaptive Program. Uh, I called a couple other ones, the National Sports Center for the Disabled and one back east. And I, I said, tell me about Paralympic snowboarding. And everyone had the same exact answer. What Paralympic snowboarding? There's no such thing. I would go, what do you mean there's no such thing? Like, I'm ripping out here. Let's go. Like, what do you mean there's no such thing? And they said, well, you know, it's just, it's not a sport. And I was like, why? Why isn't it a sport? And uh, they said, well, we don't know. There, it's just never been done before. And they said, well, we can set you up with an instructor. And I said, well, that's that's cool and all, but like, 
I don't need an instructor. I can <laughs> snowboard just fine. Like it would be cool to have someone to show me around a mountain, but otherwise, like I don't need someone to teach me. So I can beat uh, my instructor down the mountain, right? <laughs> exactly. Well, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, so my thing was like, well, if there's no such thing as Paralympic snowboarding, let's make it happen. And so my big thing at this point, this was going into the 2010 season, I believe. I was like, how do we get it started? There's no such thing. How do we get it started? And in my thought was like, well, learn how to teach adaptive snowboarding. So how do you do that? You become a snowboard instructor, you get certifications, you find people and you teach them and then we all compete together. So that was my thought process. And that's actually how I discovered it. So little did I know uh, the year before there were unofficial competitions happening. And that actual season was the first season that they had a sanctioned World Cup. And that was in OCRS France. And I believe that was uh, maybe January or February of uh, the 2010-2011 season. And so I was getting an, uh, an adaptive certification. That was how I discovered it all. And mm-hmm. the guy was from uh, the National Ability Center he was essentially teaching me how to tether to a to a bicycle, um, and you essentially control the bicycle. And a lot of the instructors that may or may not be watching this will totally be able to to relate to this. But um, it, the idea was the concept was a snowboarder has one edge, not having to utilize two edges. So it was how to tether a snowboarder to a bicycle, and then that was the certification that day. So. It's kind of a crazy story. I'd worked two weeks straight as a snowboard instructor. It was all through the holiday. It was like uh, the first or second of January was this was this um, was a certification. And my boss had told me about it. It was my one day off and I was supposed to work another two weeks straight as as snowboard instructor. And it had dumped so much snow that night. I mean, we had like a two foot pow day. I was sleeping on a buddy's couch at his house because he was my ride to the mountain. And I woke up at about 630 in the morning uh, and I looked outside and I saw feet of snow in the valley, in the Ogden Valley, which means there's even more up at the mountain. (laughs) And I was like, I'm not going to this certification. I'm going to go ride pow with the boys. Right. So I went back to sleep and I joke you not like 10 or 15 minutes later, Sean, I woke up to a voice that literally sounded like it was right here. And I said, wake up. And I woke up. It was still kind of dark. I looked over. Colton was still asleep. And I was like, wow, that was weird. So I said, okay, Colton, get up. Let's, let's get ready. Pow day. Let's go ride all this. Right. So by the time we get up to the mountain, uh, the, the certification had already started. And all my buddies, they're like, yeah, power day. They're all stoked. You know, they're all a bunch of snow bros. They're like, let's do this. So something inside of me felt kind of wrong, right? Like I was like, I feel like I really should go to this certification. So like, look, guys, I'm going to go over to the snow sports and just see if they can get me up. Chances are they're going to tell me, no, you missed it, blah, blah, blah. Um, and that'll be that. And I'll go ride with you guys. I'm like, all right, cool. So I go check. They radio up. They say, yeah, send Keith up. It'd be great to have him. So I'm like, oh, man, I really wanted to go ride pal, you know, like. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> so 
So I go back and tell my buddies, and they're like, oh, you're dumb. You know where we'll be. Like, if you get time, come ride with us. And so I said, all right, cool. So I go up and I do a couple laps with the certifier, and, and we're doing some of the drills, and then they break for lunch. I go take a couple free ride laps. Instead of going and eating, come back and do the second half of, of the drills and everything. So at the end of the day, the certifier, he goes, he comes up to me and he goes, so I hear you have one leg. And I'm like, oh, no. Like, does this mean I don't get my certification? And he just laughs and he goes, why aren't you on my team? And I said, what are you talking about? And I said, he, he says, I have a snowboard team. I said, there's no such thing. Like, what do you mean? And he's like, <laughs> little do you know, the World Snowboard Federation is picking up adaptive snowboarding in the very first uh, World Cup is going to be held in Osiris, France in a couple of weeks. Do you want to go? And I was like, yeah, this sounds too good to be true, but yeah, I'm down. Like, I don't have a passport, but let's figure it out, you know? So he told me, you know, figure out how to get a passport in under two weeks and meet me in Lyon, France on this day, and we'll go from there. And so I did. And I went and competed. I was on a free style board. I think I was on uh, uh, LibTech Skate Banana, which is like one of these, right? It, it's not what you want to be racing on. And it had over 200 days on it. So, I mean, it was just beat. And uh, I got on the podium. You know, there wasn't a ton of us, in all fairness. I got third out of maybe 17 athletes. <laughs> but uh, I got on the podium. And then we did it again the next day. And I did it again. I got on the podium again. I was like, man, this is cool. I mean, I had baggy clothes. <laughs> I had a mohawk. I was just this weirdo from Ogden, Utah that nobody had ever heard of. And uh, <laughs> and I was like, this is cool. We got to make this happen. You know, this is already, this is, this is in the works. Let's go, you know? And so I just kind of dedicated my life to it. And at that time it was adaptive snowboarding. And if you didn't Google adaptive snowboarding, you wouldn't see the two articles that were on the internet. And that was it. It was like two articles. If you didn't Google that, there was no chance of you finding finding the uh, literature on it. So that's kind of how I got involved with it. It's kind of why it took so long. You know, it just it was the birth of the sport. And I'm so lucky to just still be doing it to this very day. You know, it's it's um, it's come a long ways and I think it still has a long way to go. But uh, we've done a lot of heavy lifting to to kind of give it that push that hopefully it'll be around long after I'm gone. And as you mentioned, you were at the, at the very beginning of it. And of course it became a Paralympic sport in, in 2014. Uh, and, and, and that year, of course, team USA swept the podium. So what was that experience like? Oh man, uh, you just got me chills. <laughs> uh, every time I think about it, I get chills. It's, it's something that was, we knew it was possible, but it was like, it wasn't something that we were shooting for as a team. There's so many good riders at that point, And we knew it was, it was a relatively long shot. We had done it before in the world cup level uh, to sweep the podium, but uh, we never thought that we'd do it at the games of all places. And to get the sport in, I mean, I got to say like, that was a lot of heavy lifting as well as a lot of work to get the the IOC and the IPC to get us in and it got to the point we've been told no maybe four or five times we were shooting for pyeongchang mm -hmm. and about a year out from the games they say congratulations your sport's gonna be in sochi you better get ready and um 
So, I mean, it was a lot of like, okay, we got to train, we got to train hard, but to sweep the podium with my two teammates, I mean, you never want to lose, but if you're going to lose to anyone, you want it to be that American flag at the end of the day. At least I do. Um, going to the podium ceremony and watching all three American flags being raised mm -hmm. in Russia and watching Russian military color guard salute our flags. I mean, <laughs> I don't know about you, but that that just is something that you'd never expect to see and probably never will see again. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it was a great experience. And, you know, we rode hard. We rode fast. The course was as good as we had seen them. Um, there was a couple sketchy parts. So you had to avoid crashing, which was a big part of it, especially at the speeds we were going into the features. They weren't quite built to take the speeds that we were going into them. And so, you know, it was, it was, it was a heavy day of riding. And, and um, if I may, I'll share a story real quick. You know, I was stone cold the whole time. I was like, ready to go. Let's do this. I was fully prepared. And I get in the start gate and I'm about to grab the handles and the rider before me had just crossed the finish line. And I heard the roar of the crowd. And mind you, we'd never really ridden in front of a crowd this size at this point. Mm. And mm. all of a sudden my hands just started trembling. And I look over at my coach, Travis, and I'm like, Travis, dude, what do I do? And he, Travis McLean, he's a funny guy. He's, he's a legend in the snowboard industry. And he's just like, no, no. <laughs> your focus remember your focuses and let's go yeah yeah we're right here you're stone cold and i was like oh yeah and I, he goes crank up your music and just go and so that's what i did i just turned up the music and all of a sudden the hands went back to stone cold and i was able to get out of the gate with confidence but boy there was that split second where i heard the crowd and everything and i just was like oh, it all hit me all at once <laughs> I want to I want to pivot for a bit, Keith. I know that you are a team Hartford athlete. What does that mean to you as an elite athlete to get that type of support from from a company like the Hartford Insurance? I mean, man, the Hartford's been around forever, and for a long time, they were one of the the biggest supporters of U.S. Paralympic snowboarding uh, or U.S. Paralympics as a whole, um, as well as snowboarding. So when you hear of other Paralympians or adaptive athletes getting sponsorships, you hear of all the names, you know, and it's right up there with with the Nike and Deloitte and um, uh, maybe it used to be United Airlines, but now it's Delta. You hear of all these big corporate sponsors and then you hear of the Hartford and, and it's one of those sponsors when you're talking to someone, like, man, how did you get that? Like, that's it's one of those sponsors, you know, mm -hmm. um, and to be able to to say that I'm I'm still a Hartford athlete after all of these years and to have been able to get that to obtain that that level of, of sponsorship is it's hard to explain because it's such a big company it's they do so much and for them to take the 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 time and the effort to really put into just one single athlete or a handful of athletes and you're one of them I mean it's 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 a big deal you know going into the 2018 season I was I was flat broke, to be honest. My wife and I, we weren't really sure how we were going to make the season happen. We weren't sure if, if I was actually going to make it to the games because at that point, most of us have to work a second job in one fashion or another. Um, and I was really trying to avoid that because I wanted to train throughout the entire season as well as compete and having a job and being on the road all the time. It just doesn't usually work. Um, 
which is understandable. You want to be a good employee and the employer needs you to be there. <laughs> so you're like, I got to go to you know Canada for a week or I got to go to Finland for two weeks. It's They don't really, a lot of times they don't understand that. And so we were down to about probably the last 2000 bucks. And I live in a very expensive place in order to be able to train at one of the best mountains, in my opinion. And um, they reached out and we were able to kind of get me in front of some of their people to share my story. And we realized it was a good fit. But up until that point, I was freaking out because I didn't have anything to my name to sell, let alone any money in the bank account to get me to where I needed to go. And and that level of sponsorship, they got me through the season, you know, and, and a lot of athletes you hear of the poor broke athlete just trying to make it eating ramen noodles and hot dogs. That's not an athlete's diet, you know, and that's because you'll skimp here to be able to pay for your next flight or to pay for your training or your season pass or your rent or whatever. Um, And so that level of sponsorship came in and it just like, it was such a relief. I could just focus on what I needed to. And it really set me up for success going into the games year. And speaking of the Hartford, you know, this is the 35th year that the Hartford uh, Ski Spectacular is taking place. It always takes place the first weekend or first weekend in December. Um, you've been a regular guest uh, at this event. What does this event mean to you? Oh, man. I mean, so let, let's be honest. Ski Spectacular is the biggest adaptive snow sports uh, program, if you will, or, or event in North America each year. And I started coming as a volunteer and as a snowboard instructor to get certifications. So to kind of bring it full circle and be a guy who is still there to support and volunteer, but also say hi to everyone and share my experiences. It's so cool. I mean, you see, you see it day one, everyone is going to see it. Mm-hmm. there's going to be people that are nervous. There's going to be people with trepidation that you can see it on their face. Like, I don't know. I've never been on a, on a snowboard before, or I've never three tracked before or been on a bi-ski. Um, they just said I should try it. And we're here in Breckenridge, Colorado to try something that may break me off. If you will, <laughs> uh, that's what we say in snowboarding. When <laughs> you get injured, break me off. Um <laughs> Gotcha. <laughs> you see it. And then by by the end, I mean, it's smiles and it's it's goal setting and it's accomplishment. And it's if nothing else, it's a few days of getting people together and allowing people to experience something new that they never thought was possible. They get their church. They get a chance to be alive. Um, you know, I, I've always been a big advocate of, of getting off the couch because I know so many people and I was even almost one who gave up and just sat on a couch and gave into the pills and all that kind of stuff. But, but this is a totally different avenue that allows you to get away from that. And I think that's the biggest thing is we're giving people a chance to live a little bit in a controlled environment with people who know how to give the lessons. And that's, that's a huge piece of the puzzle. Anybody can go get a mono ski if they've got time and money, anybody can get themselves to the mountain, but to learn how to do it and to be with someone who can truly teach them in a safe environment and safely teach them is, is a huge piece of the puzzle. And the Hartford being willing to be the title sponsor for all of these years, 
that's a huge deal because without without the dough, there is no show. And we all know that, um, you know, and, and they fork it out because they see it also. They're, they're extremely passionate about linking up with Move United. I mean, it's a great partnership and, and giving people with, with adaptations and disabilities an avenue to live. I, I, you know, um, if I may, you know, it feels like a family when you're there. And that's why I keep coming back. Why do you keep going to Christmas dinner? <laughs> you know, because you want to be with your family. And this is just a big family to me. And I, I love sharing it. And one of the things that I know you've also done, and you're very generous and philanthropic with your time, but you've also been a part of, uh, you know, these gifting moments where we've been able to, in partnership with the Hartford and Move United, we've been able to to gift new adaptive sports equipment to to athletes with disabilities. What? Why do you enjoy being a part of those moments? Because I know what it costs. I mm. see, I see the look on people's faces when when they realize they're the one that that is getting chosen for this gift. Um, adaptive equipment is not cheap. You know, uh, the second you try to go through insurance for uh, VersaFoot two, uh, it's ten ten to twelve thousand bucks. You want a Moto knee, thirty thousand um, dollars. A Sitski. I could only imagine probably in the twelve to twenty thousand dollar range. I don't know, but I would assume it's something like that. Sledge hockey, same deal. You see it time and time again. You want people want to be able to do this stuff, but they simply can't afford it. And again, what Move United and the Hartford are doing is giving people a chance, giving a chance to live life, chase their dreams, get after it, do something other than sit on the couch. And I think that's that's one of the biggest one pieces of the puzzle again, but it's also one of the most important things we can do is give people a chance. And being someone who gets to present that stuff, it's it's hard to put in words how how much it means to me and how great it feels to just know that these two great organizations have have had the are are giving someone a chance. I mean you I know what it costs. I know what it costs. I know it's not cheap. And I know there's a lot of people that give up on their hopes and dreams of, of skiing, snowboarding, uh, uh, track and field, whatever the case may be, some sort of sport because they just simply can't afford it. You know, and it's sad that Team USA is one of the best in the world always. And we don't even know how good we could be because of the amount of athletes we lose every year due to finances. Mm, mm, good point. Very good point. I know that you you balance a lot of different things at being an athlete, uh, you know, some speaking engagements and whatnot. So, what's the future hold for Key Table? Well, we're making we're making one more run. I uh, I'll be honest, I was not happy with my showing in in Beijing. I didn't compete well. I had had a I had a great season. I got my at the the last World Cup. I earned my fiftieth World Cup medal. Mm -hmm. uh, which is a huge, huge, uh, milestone, but, uh, at the games, I just didn't compete well. And I know that that was partially my fault. Um, I probably put about two years worth of effort into a four year deal and I know what it takes. I know what it takes to stand on the top of that podium. Uh, and I know it takes a full four years and I was just disappointed with myself more than anything that I really didn't put the effort in that, that I needed to, to perform well at that stage. So, um, uh, going four more years and, <laughs> and until then 
you know, that's that's the main thing. We've got a coffee shop here uh, in Elgibel, Colorado, just just on the other side of the mountains. Um, so we're going to be running that, and and hopefully that continues to to flourish and thrive. And we've got a little three year old little guy that uh, you know we're we're spending time with. I've been snowboarding with him a couple times this season. You know, he's three and a half, and this is his third season. So. Um, you know, with him, it's primarily damage control. We can't stop him from doing wild and crazy things, even at such a young age. Um, otherwise, it's our life is is rough. So uh, with him, we just make sure he's he's got the good helmets and and padded up and all of that. And um, we spend. I just want to spend time with my family more than anything because we do spend a lot of time on the road in the in the winter. And um, yeah, so. Future holds more competitions, more medals. Um, I'd like to get another world championship under my belt. And um, I'd like to get that that gold finally. It's the one I'm missing. It's the piece <laughs> of the puzzle for me. That would be perfect to, to close out on. You know, it'd be the perfect end to a chapter. So, and until then, you know, we'll see. We'll see. We're just going to keep snowboarding and living in the mountains and enjoying life being at church most days <laughs> and and keith how do people connect with you and what either what social media platforms are you on or or how can people uh, just reach out or follow your journey even yes yeah, so i'd say my my where i'm most present is probably instagram um doing the reels learning all about that kind of stuff <laughs> but uh you know that i i am on facebook here and there but uh instagram is probably my biggest platform um my handle is at Grizzly Gable, G-R-I-Z-Z-L-Y-G-A-B-E-L, Gable like label, not table. Uh, <laughs> uh, you can follow along on Facebook, too, if that's more more your speed. Um, and it's just my account is Keith Gable. Um, I have a Twitter handle that I don't know if I really use. It's all linked to the other stuff. So whatever you see on Twitter came from Instagram or Facebook. But uh, those are probably the best ways to follow along with me. 